Welcome to an episode of Ad Hoc. My name is Jack Silvers. I'm Matthew. I'm Jaden. And today we're going to talk about a policy issue that cuts across multiple systems in the US and around the world, whether it's criminal justice, healthcare, or racial equity. And that topic is drugs. Drugs have a massive impact on our society. Here in the U.S., we've seen significant changes in the way that we approach drug regulation and substance use disorders just in the past decade. The opioid epidemic has devastated American communities, leading to more focus on treatment and also a new philosophy called harm reduction that we'll talk about. Marijuana is legalized in 21 states across the country and D.C. and in even more states for medicinal purposes. And municipalities in some parts of the country have even began to legalize psychedelic drugs which perhaps can make headway on psychiatric disorders. And all of these come in the shadow of the war on drugs, which was the biggest American drug policy change in recent memory, which criminalized drug use in the efforts to rid them from American communities. So clearly there's a spectrum of approaches that we'll talk about from total legalization and commercialization of drugs to decriminalization. So I'll pose the question to you guys, and then I'll begin with a case study that we can look at. But I'm wondering what we can learn from other countries that have moved further on the spectrum towards decriminalizing drugs than we have. So I'm going to start by introducing the case study that most people look to here, and that's Portugal. Mm. Um, many people don't know, perhaps, but in 2001, Portugal decriminalized the full spectrum of drugs. So All of them. All of them. Not, not, not just marijuana, as we might suspect in the U.S., um, not just cocaine, not just heroin. Any substance in Portugal is decriminalized. Um, and that does not mean that these substances are legal and that they're still contraband um, and selling is still a, a major crime in Portugal. But the purchase, the use, and the possession are administrative offenses in Portugal. So no one serves prison time for simply using a substance. Um, and this was seen as a radical decision at the time. And we can get into why Portugal did this. But I think Portugal is probably the, the seminal case study of what it looks like to totally take away criminal penalties for drugs. So what did you guys think when you were first reading about Portugal? And then let's, let's talk about some other countries as well. Well, first of all, I, I think it's worth noting that it's not as though Portugal had some kind of magical preconditions for policy success when it comes to drugs, right? In the 90s, around 1% of their population was hooked on heroin. And Portugal had the highest rate of HIV in the entire European Union. Yeah. And to deal with that drug problem for a while, Portugal did the U.S. thing, right? It did the war on, war on drugs approach. Half the people in prison in Portugal were there for drug-related crimes. And then in 2001, it makes this radical policy shift. Um, and, you know, there are disputes about how much of the successes of Portugal can be causally attributed to that move with decriminalization. And, you know, there was a bit of a decline in drug-related deaths prior to 2001, prior to that policy shift. But on the whole, the world of Portugal prior to decriminalization was a very different place. And it was one where drug use was extremely criminalized, where tons of people were incarcerated for drug use, and where there was truly a drug epidemic in the country. And that seems to be less and less the case, at least on a first superficial glance yeah. at the policy successes of Portugal. Yeah. B before getting completely into the results of decriminalization, I think it's worth it to look at, I think what may be one of the most impactful parts of decriminalization in Portugal, 
which was the creation of commissions for the dissuasion of drug addiction. These were, commis these were commissions uh, that are made up of three people, a legal expert, a social worker, and a doctor. And people that are caught using drugs, again, it's decriminalized, they're not sent to prison, but they're encouraged to go to these commissions. At these commissions, uh, they're asked a lot of questions about their history with drugs, about their family. They're also asked about other things like depression, about other causes that could have uh, yielded them to use, to use these drugs. And then they're given recommendations. They're told, maybe go to a treatment center. And the commissions themselves do the calls. So the people who are struggling with drug addiction don't have to go back home, figure out where to go, pay a lot of money. And this is maybe is a problem that the U.S. has that is a total different, totally different argument, but Portugal has universal health care. So yeah. patients don't have to pay for the treatment they get. But this is a hu huge deal because there's actually an effort to incentivize people to seek treatment. There's rehabilitation uh, measures in place. It's not just like we're going to give you a fine. We're going to help you deal with the problem. And those efforts have, have worked. Um, from One study shows that from 1998 to 2011, the number of people receiving drug treatment in Portugal increased by 60%. Um, so this is all kind of part of this reframing of drug consumption from a criminal nefarious activity to a medical matter where you need interventions to help people out who are suffering. Yeah. And I'll just add in on Jaden, your point about the, the commissions, which I, when I read, I found, you know, miraculous. It's, it's hard to imagine, as you said, here in the U.S., just because the level of personal care that is go, goes into each of these commissions. Yeah. Um, I think having that kind of individual focus on each individual drug user, seeing them as a medical case that is going to evolve and hopefully refer them to treatment was, I think, the, the biggest ideolog ideological shift that I saw in Portugal. And yeah, Matt, to, to echo the success, I, I read other studies that talked about the drop. Um, apparently, teenage use, which is yeah. usually seen by researchers as predictive, you know, as the teenagers grow, they, they continue to use, so it, it predicts what society will do, went up shortly before and after the policy was enacted in 2001 and then normalized. Um, so on the whole, and politically, it seems in Portugal, people generally support the policy. No, no one serious is attempting to go back to the pre decriminalization framework. Um, so whether or not you see Portugal as a success that's applicable to other drug contexts within the country, it's seen as a success. I, so. I think there's like also an important distinction to make between just like different kinds of use. Um, you noted that use among youth maybe went up for a little bit and then normalized. I read a couple studies that said casual use also rose um, because of decriminalization. Yeah. But there's an important distinction to make between casual use and harmful misuse of drugs. And when we're talking about the issue of drug addiction, you usually want to focus on harmful use of drugs rather than just somebody hanging out with their friends and deciding to get high once in a while. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll talk about this when we get into the application to America where we use maybe some of the similar drugs in Portugal but in different ways. Um, a vast majority of Americans have tried illicit drugs at some point in their life, uh, but very few end up becoming physically dependent or addicted to those substances. I think it's something like 4% of total drug users um, yeah. around those numbers. Um, so yeah, it is the question of, are you comfortable, are you willing to see a, an increase in broad-based drug use, but also lower abuse? And I think most people would be pretty comfortable with that trade-off. I am, at yeah. least. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's also not just about abuse. It's about the willingness and ability to seek 
medical care in instances um, where something goes wrong, uh, you know, where a drug is laced with something that you didn't know. And in cases where it's decriminalized, you don't have to be fearful of calling an ambulance or calling the police right. and getting medical attention. Right. And, you know, those are probably among the reasons why in Portugal we did see overdose deaths decrease by 80% since yeah. the policy in 2001. And the number of HIV infections also among drug users plummeting. Um, the number of new HIV infections dropping from 52% in, in the year 2000 to 7% in 2015. Wow. Yeah. So some pretty remarkable differences. And again, always difficult to causally attribute some of this to a specific policy, but yeah. there, are, there are at least reasons to believe that it did follow from it. Yeah. And I, I want to move to other areas because I know Portugal isn't the only one that's experimented. Um, so Matt, you know, you're our resident Canadian here. Please, please <laughs> tell us a little bit about Canada. I, however, the, the last thing that I'll say in this initial part about Portugal, the other stat that I think is important is the prison population. Yeah. Because you can't talk about decriminalization yeah. without talking about how putting more people in jail entails more spending, mm -hmm. also affects those people's lives, those people's lives who are in prison, you know, long after they leave. Um, so Portugal saw their prison population of people who were in jail for drug offenses fell um, to 21%, uh, where it was over half before the policy. Uh, in the U.S., the equivalent of that, uh, shrinking the prison population that much by drug offenses uh, would be like letting around 260,000 people out of jail or about the population of Buffalo, wow. which is like a, you know, a semi-important city in New York. So, <laughs> semi. So, semi. There's a football uh, game there. It, go Bills. Um, but that's an, a not non-significant number. Of right. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but let's let's go into another case right. study. Let's just talk about Canada. Yeah, let's move to Canada. Um, well, so Canada's had legal weed for a while. But the interesting shift that's happened recently is that the province of BC is no longer pursuing criminal charges for possession of small amounts of illegal drugs. Yeah, so that's it's, British Columbia, right? Yeah, and so it's sort of an lines. intermediate step between, you know, the criminalization of drugs in most countries and the full decriminalization that we see in Portugal, it's an intermediate step where small amounts have been, possession of small amounts have been decriminalized. So if you're 18 and up, you can possess up to 2.5 grams of opioids, cocaine, methamphetamine, MDMA. And it's a three-year pilot program, basically. So the federal government is granting BC an exemption from federal law to be able to do this. And the rest of Canada is watching, right? You know, Canada is not a country that is opposed to taking these more open measures on drug policy. We did the legalizing marijuana before a lot of other countries did. Yeah. And so this is an experiment in BC, but it's very much an experiment that the rest of the country is probably looking out for. And the context in BC was very similar to Portugal. Um, you know, it happened in the context of a public health emergency. There were more than 10,000 people in BC died from drug overdoses since the public health emergency was declared in 2016. And this was largely seen as a response to that. There are disputes over whether it goes far enough a lot of advocates say decriminalizing drugs doesn't go far enough because we need a safe supply of drugs for people who are going to end up consuming them anyway. Yeah. And while decriminalizing may keep you out of the criminal justice system and it may allow you to seek medical attention, it can't guarantee that the drugs you're getting aren't laced with fentanyl, right? It can't tell you exactly what the origins and the contents in your drug are and the quantities of your drug are when you don't know where it's coming from, when you're not buying it from a legitimate supplier. So we don't want to overstate what this is doing in response to the public health emergency that BC was seeing. 
uh, but it is considered a response to it. Yeah, Matthew, as you talked about, decriminalization has the advantage of you're not totally giving it to law enforcement anymore. But there's still the health concern that people could be using drugs they don't necessarily understand what they're taking. Um, the rise of fentanyl contamination with heroin and with synthetic opioids. And, and even even marijuana now. Yeah, like, really. It, it, more recently, usually, I think Usually not because there's, there's a discrepancy in prices if it's worth it. Yeah. But fentanyl yeah. is so cheap and synthetic opioids are, are just so cheap that it sometimes even makes sense yeah. to infuse weed with them. Yeah, and that that just gets back to the reality that this is a, a market. Whether it's regulated or unregulated, weed or opioid entrepreneurs are going to go for the lowest cost product. Yeah. And cutting fentanyl makes it significantly cheaper. Um, I didn't know that that was a report with contaminated weed with fentanyl. That's that's really alarming. Um, but the I think the idea that's emerged in the past few years, it's not a new idea. It's been around for decades, but people are accepting it more to avoid people taking drugs that they don't know uh, is the philosophy of harm reduction. And harm reduction essentially says that we live in an imperfect world where people use drugs for many reasons, sometimes uh, justifiably uh, for medicinal purposes or in response to systems of oppression. And the best thing that we can do to make sure that they don't harm themselves is to help them take drugs in a responsible way and then refer them to treatment if possible. Um, so harm reduction has a lot of different methods within it, uh, from you know, safe needles to referring people to treatment to drug testing. Um, and I think we'll see examples of where it's been quite effective in the places where it's, 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 it's existed. Yeah. Well, one more radical form of uh, harm reduction that has been tried in Canada, in BC, um, are these things called supervised injection sites, in which people can safely go to a facility there are medical professionals and clean syringes and take their drugs legally, which is kind of crazy. Pre-obtained drugs, notably. It's not as though drugs yes, are no, being they're not. they're not going exactly, there and just yeah. uh, the heroin is waiting for them there. Yeah. But they're going there with their drugs and they're allowed to safely take them there. Harm reduction can also exist in other methods in places where uh, drugs are completely illegal. As Jack, you mentioned, places offer clean syringes. They also offer testing strips so people can test whether their drugs are laced with more harmful substances so they don't overdose. Uh, but there's this shift across the globe towards recognizing that people are going to take drugs whether we criminalize them or not. And it's important to make sure if they're taking drugs, they're taking them safely. Yeah. And just to illuminate the link between decriminalization and these harm reduction policies, it's, it's not an inherent tie, but but basically... A policy of decriminalizing drug consumption tends to eliminate some of the barriers, whether legal barriers or social barriers related to stigma that allows for the emergence of these kinds of safe injection sites, these right. syringe distribution programs. And so decriminalizing in some sense is considered to an extent a necessary precursor to right. the introduction or the expansion of some of these um, of some of these harm reduction policies. Yeah. yeah. And the stigma is real uh, because I think Another evolution is just the, the language that we use to talk about drug addicts. And addict also is a word that I think we should try to use less because we don't call people with cancer cancers. We don't call people who are depressed depressives. Um, addiction is truly the only medical condition that 
we accept we accept that we can categorize an entire person person mm. as their sickness. Sure. Um, but I think along with harm reduction, the stigma is the concern that you're enabling drug use. I think that's the phrase that people will usually critics of harm reduction policies will usually bring up. Um, the concern that people who aren't already physically dependent yeah. on drugs will yeah. come to these harm reduction facilities and become addicted, um, which is farcical. I, I mean, it's well. No, I mean, I, there's, I think there, there's some truth on the margins, probably. Like, I don't, I don't think we can totally deny that movements towards more lax drug policies or policies that make people feel safer in consuming drugs might lead to marginal changes in the quantities of consumption. Right. The, the question just becomes: yeah. Is that trade-off? of slightly more drug consumption paired with harm-reducing measures that are likely to mitigate damage where it occurs worth it in comparison to the massive harms of, you know, an unregulated, unsafe market that exists in the absence of those measures. And that's, that's yeah, the trade-off. But yeah, maybe, maybe I should have, I should be more precise. I think it, the, the idea that's farcical is that a wide number of people, not simply a marginal course, impact, accept it, yeah. would, who have never used consistently illegal drugs, would begin to use illegal drugs. Yes. That, that argument I don't think holds weight, uh, but I agree with you. Yeah, there, there could be marginal concerns about people who are already physically dependent will be less, will be inclined to continue use um, or increase use, yeah. There is a recent study um, of an unsanctioned supervised injection site in the US um, and patients were asked whether they were using traditionally or whether they come here to use because they can now uh, afford uh, this, this option was available to them and 90% said they would otherwise be injecting in other public spaces. Right. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's a very small percentage. I don't know if that suggests that 10% of people are completely new yeah. to injecting. And, and I'll say, I, I'm not sure exactly the specifics of the study you're talking about. That, that 10% perhaps could be people that are planning on injecting within their own homes. No, otherwise right. in public spaces. Yeah. yeah, you know, yeah, that's entirely possible as well. So I think it's a small percentage. There's also... It's it's a really hard issue to study um, because to do like a randomized trial on these issues, you have to separate people into having the option of going to these safe injection sites and then just barring people altogether from yeah. going to the injection yeah. site. Ethical concerns which, for sure. Yeah. It's certainly questionable. It's very ethically fraught. Fraught, exactly. So there's not a lot of studies that have examined this issue, but I, I think I agree with you, Jack. I think there's probably a greater benefit to the people who would be harmed and might overdose and die uh, from not having the ability to go to these injection sites than other people. I mean, there's this one injection site in BC uh, called Insight, which has done millions of injections over the years uh, and has dealt with over 6,000 drug overdoses of people yeah. at the injection site. Zero deaths. Zero. Yeah. Yeah. Versus thousands and thousands of deaths outside. So there's a, there's a real difference. Yeah, and I, I think you can you can see similarities in kind of the 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 depth of the contrast when we talk about marijuana legalization in the U.S. Yes. I mean, commonly you'll hear proponents talk about how there is not a single recorded death from marijuana overdose in human history. There is not a single recorded death in a supervised injection facility in human history. I, it's it's an issue of saving lives, um, and I think harm reduction really gets to that. But I want to take a step back for a moment. I think we've talked about multiple different approaches and degrees of decriminalization, degrees of harm reduction, embracing. Um, I want to get an idea of what we think about these generalized arguments for 
these approaches. It seems to me that an argument that we are attracted to for decriminalization is that it reduces the involvement of the criminal justice system, which has not proved effective at decreasing harm from the issue of drugs. That seems like a pro-decriminalization argument. Um, an argument perhaps even for full legalization of drugs could be about drug supply yeah. in that it's impossible to truly ascertain what is in the drug supply in a given area if it's not a legalized, regulated market. Yeah. Um, and I think arguments against both of those is about increasing the general, general percentage of the population that uses drugs, which we know can be dangerous if overused. Right. I think on drug legalization, there are some issues that arise. Uruguay was the first country on earth to legalize recreational cannabis. And their decision was they're going to regulate it heavily and only official Uruguayan pharmacies were allowed to sell the drug. So it was not privatized. Right. Businesses could not just start selling weed whenever they wanted, yep. which created problems because these official producers could not meet demand. Exactly. Afterwards, in 2018, only one-third of users in Uruguay were actually purchasing marijuana from the regulated market. So if countries decide to legalize marijuana, they have to be able to deal with the resulting demand that's going to come from them if they don't want to privatize marijuana. Yeah, and you could also imagine if you legalized, if you apply that similar model to legalizing a lot of drugs, if there were, for instance, any regulations on limiting the quantity that can be offered by right. these state-sanctioned providers, right. then there you go. That's a recipe for the emergence of a black market that's not prone to those same right. quantity restrictions. And then, you know, there's economic questions about who's going to outcompete whom. I mean, people are going to be attracted to the legal market for safety reasons. Um, another reason people might be attracted to the legal market is that legal producers don't need to bear the transactional costs of smuggling and yeah. bribing border officials and whatnot, which will just increase the price of drugs in the black market, which wouldn't necessarily apply to the legal market. But on the other hand, there's all kinds of regulations that you'd have to comply with on the legal side. So there are questions about which area people would gravitate to more, but it's definitely a complicated question. I think just to talk about the U.S. political view on this, I think that the legalization question um, really hits at like a lot of like fundamental conservative versus liberal divides. Um, first of all, you have the idea of individual liberty. Uh, should the government be allowed to tell someone what they can or cannot consume? Um, and then you also have the reality, as you said, that if you legalize a drug, the government needs to become quite involved in the commercial market. And then conservatives could be completely split. Um, wanting someone to have the freedom to choose substances yeah, and put themselves at risk if they want to, mm -hmm. but also not wanting the government to control the distribution of that substance. Yeah. Um, and I'll say that it might sound, you know, politically in the clouds to talk about a legalized market for drugs in the U.S. where the government controls the distribution of heroin or cocaine. That that might sound fantastical. Kind of does, um, yeah. But it has existed currently for marijuana partly um, and also for alcohol in the past. Yes. Um, it doesn't get talked about a lot, but after Prohibition, the government in some states was quite involved with controlling alcohol distribution and ensuring that people weren't selling alcohol that was dangerous moonshine. I think all of us mm -hmm. would be pretty scared if the government wasn't at least regulating you know, the alcohol that we drink. Um, 
And there were studies of the, the group of states that had uh, pretty much government control of liquor distribution. And it found that overall consumption of spirits was 12 to 15 percent lower than states that had a fully privatized alcohol market. Um, that seems to be a somewhat promising indication that a well-regulated, government-involved commercial market for alcohol, which is a drug but di different than other drugs we talked about, certainly, could reduce overall consumption. Um, so it might be hard to imagine the government getting really involved with these drugs yeah. that are currently illegal in the U.S., um, but it's still worth envisioning, in my yeah. view. We also, just to briefly bring in one more dimension to the discussion, we haven't talked about in detail the role of cartels and dealers. Yeah. Yeah. A role that is not eliminated by a policy of decriminalizing drugs, but that maybe is substantially reduced by a policy of legalizing them. Right. Um, in, in the south of England in 2015, there were almost 200 cases of gang members being linked to what's called cuckooing, which is basically taking over the homes of vulnerable people in exchange for free drugs. And these are kind of the almost necessary consequences, not necessary, but these are some of the plausible consequences of having a prominent black market for drugs where you have illicit suppliers that are dominating the supply lines. Right. Um, and that's almost an inevitability in any situation where you end up criminalizing uh, or enforcing punishments against supply of drugs. Right. It's, it's a very similar case in Mexico uh, where cartels and gangs produce a lot of drugs that eventually end up in the U.S. A huge percentage right. of the marijuana uh, consumption of drugs in the U.S. comes from Mexico. And so a lot of people hypothesize that the solution to the drug problem in Mexico is not in Mexico, it's in the U.S. Right. That if U.S. states legalize marijuana, hopefully that pushes prices down enough and incentivizes people to buy regulated areas and through legal processes rather than getting them from the cartels in Mexico. Yeah, not to mention, I mean, the massive criminalization of Latin America and the American psyche. I mean, how often do you find linking of discussion of drug trafficking to immigration? So all, yeah. the, I mean, guns, millions of guns also flow across the southern border, um, which is a separate issue. But I think that there is a perception that evil Latin American cartels smuggling drugs into the United States is a massive reason for us to be suspicious of activity at the border. Um, when, as you said, if we legalized and regulated markets in the United States, we might actually be able to normalize relationships with Latin American countries yeah. in a more real way. Um, but to, to make it real, uh, I don't think that drug decriminalization in the United States is on the horizon in the next few years. Uh, but it's not something that hasn't been talked about in Congress. Drug, but uh, drug decriminalization has happened in some places. Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry. Let me, I say at the federal level, perhaps federal. we won't see it. Yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I mean... In, in Vermont, I thought there was an interesting program that I saw um, that was about heroin treatment um, that kind of decriminalized the use of heroin in exchange for offering treatment options. Um, and we've seen local level action of this magnitude. Um, yeah. At the federal level, there, there was a bill that was introduced last year, I believe. Um, Corey Bush was one of the, the authors, I believe. It was called the Drug Policy Reform Act. Uh, it was kind of coincided with the 50th anniversary of Nixon's announcement of the war on drugs. It would decriminalize all drug use, expunge existing criminal records for drugs, and it would invest in health-centered measures to take on drug addiction. Um, and crucially, it would shift regulatory authority over drugs from the Department of Justice, so criminal activity, 
to the Department of Health and Human Services, mm. um, which I thought was cool. Yeah. Um, that bill is not advanced in the House. Uh, it won't advance in, in the other House um, or the other chamber of Congress. Uh, but it's not completely out of line with what some Americans believe in polling. Uh, we've seen from polls, these are from 2019, uh, that a majority of Americans say that they would favor recategorizing drug offenses from felonies to civil offenses. Mm. So that would be a step towards decriminalization. That, that is yeah. what cri- decriminalization is about. It's divided on political lines, certainly. Uh, the majority of Republicans would oppose that. The majority of Democrats would support Which is a little puzzling to me, by the way, as an, as an outsider in this country, because... Well, I mean, I don't know. The, the extent to which republicanism is now associated with libertarianism is, I guess, Less. in question. But, but <laughs> like, drug consumption in theory should be a small government libertarian policy position. Anyway. In theory, it's, yeah. It's, but and, and it is, yeah. I think, by the think tanks. But by libertarian think tanks, I think, yeah, are right. generally... And the, the polls I cited, I'm not sure if these were conducted by Cato, um, but they were in a Cato Institute Exactly, yeah, so, Cato, yeah. I think Cato and libertarian think tanks would have a lot to say about yes. decriminalizing. I think there's also maybe an even bigger discrepancy between youth and old people than there is between oh, Republicans yes. and Democrats. Yeah. Pew Research Center in 2022 did their own studies on how people... Picture like, viewed uh, drug decriminalization and legalization. The vast majority of Americans uh, support legalization for medical and recreational use, and you can see a huge discrepancy both within Republicans and Democrats between old and young people. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, sixty-two percent of young Republicans, aged eighteen to twenty-nine, also support that. So a pretty large majority of Republicans, if they're young, support that, and then it's like off the charts for. <laughs> Young Democrats. <laughs> yeah. So I think maybe it's part of it's traditional. Yeah. Drugs just have this this negative connotation in people's minds that it's hard to change. Yeah. And I, I'm just going to throw also the, the economic aspect of kind of the forces that control our political system. The disparity between how we talk about marijuana and prescription drugs, two different drugs, but... For example, people who argue against medicinal marijuana sometimes advance the argument they only want it because they want to abuse it. Or we shouldn't advocate for widespread medicinal marijuana use because people are just going to get high um, for their own reasons. One would never seriously advance the argument that one that we should wide-scale change our policy towards prescription drugs um, that are useful for many diseases because the majority of people who get them only want to abuse them. Um, and I think a big part of that is there is a huge pharmaceutical industry that has a vested interest in keeping prescription drugs regulated and legal. That hasn't evolved so far with marijuana in the United States. And a lot of people think that's a good thing. We shouldn't have big weed, which is pushing for a totally you know, unregulated uh, but legal marijuana market. Um, so I think that's relevant too. I think the, I'm just going to bring in an aspect that I think we haven't got into yet, which is the, in the U.S., the racial justice aspect of, of marijuana legalization. Yeah. Um, historically, we know that the motivation for the war on drugs from Nixon's perspective was explicitly racial. Um, there was just a, a crazy interview with a, a former Nixon staffer who was actually involved in Watergate, uh, disgraced and just decided to tell his, his stories about everything. Um, but he, he essentially admitted to a reporter um, that the war on drugs was about criminalizing the anti-war left and black people. Wow. So marijuana which was associated with hippies and anti-war activists, and heroin, which was forcibly associated with black people, were made extremely illegal, and then you could punish those populations. Schedule one. Schedule one, yeah. Marijuana is a schedule one drug in the United States. 
which allegedly, you know, if you read the Controlled Substance Act, means that it is considered to be the most dangerous type of drug, no accepted medicinal use. <laughs> which we laugh at today, and I think it should always be laughed at, um, because it's not just false, it's disingenuous. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, I don't think in 1970, the writers of that law believed that. I think that they were closer to believing, I'm not you know, accusing the, the regulators of being racist, um, but the people in the Nixon administration knew that Schedule One was more about the people it targeted than the medicinal or non-medicinal uses of marijuana. So the the schedules are messed up. And another element of this racialized drug policy approach that deserves mention is the disparities in um, cocaine convictions with crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. At the height of the war on drugs, African-Americans were more likely to consume crack cocaine than powder cocaine. And the sentencing disparities between the two offenses were 100 to 1. Um, which wasn't really grounded in the science of crack being much worse than powder cocaine. And that is one of the very significant elements that resulted in enormous racial disparities in the time that was served in prison for for no real apparent scientific or medical reason. In fact, during that time, under that regime of 100 to 1 sentencing disparities, African-Americans ended up serving almost as much time in prison for nonviolent drug offenses as whites did for violent offenses. Crazy. Wow. And I'll just, I'll say on that, that those disparities were not a thing of the past until very recently. Um, If I'm correct, I think the First Step Act, which was a criminal justice reform passed 2017 under Trump, still had provisions about correcting that disparity between crack and powder cocaine. Uh, so we've been aware of this for years, and people yeah. have been raising alarm bells that this is lunacy. Um, but in the federal policy books, it has still had wide-spanning impacts. But I think what's worth talking about is today, when marijuana is becoming more and more legal in more states, and we're considering federal legislation. Um, Will marijuana legalization actually correct some of those racial inequities? Uh, Because there's some alarming trends that show that the vast majority of legal weed businesses in states where weed has been legalized are Um, white-owned. So that kind of argues against the argument that there can be a flowering of marijuana business that is diverse and equitable and allows for kind of a uh, reconsideration and recouping of everything that was lost in the war on drugs. Um, but is, is there a way to, to make sure that it's equitable? So two, two things on that. Um, it is at least true that decriminalizing weed possession has an effect on incarceration rates. New York and New Jersey were second and third highest in marijuana possession rates, uh, arrest rates, uh, until 2021. Before 2021 and 2020, they each reported over 20,000 arrests. But in 2021 combined, only had 783. So there's, there's, there's a huge drop, obviously, because you decriminalize, you're not going to arrest people. Yeah. But because those arrests have historically impacted minorities far more than others, th- there's an effect. There's also an effect the government can have. Uh, in 2020, the House of, Representative pa- House of Representatives passed the Moore Act, which moved to remove marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. And part of the act would create an opportunity trust fund, which had a couple of purposes. One was to create 
a community reinvestment grant program, which would provide services like literacy programs, youth training, and mentoring to those who are most impacted by the war on drugs. Another prong of the Opportunity Trust Fund would be to create a cannabis opportunity grant program, which would give funds for loans to assist small marijuana businesses that are owned by disadvantaged individuals. So there are some policies that just come naturally from decriminalizing, and there are other policies that the government has to actively take in order to hopefully equalize the inequalities that have resulted from the war on drugs. Yeah, and I think that those policies are really positive, and I would hope that the, the more acts would have a possibility of becoming federal law. I, but I think the problem with the, the mixed framework with different state policies, but still marijuana being a Schedule One drug, is that arguably, but in my opinion, the best arbiter of what's fair and what can be best regulated is the federal government because it just has the most power over, for example, the banking system. Um, it's a major obstacle to legal weed um, that most legal weed businesses in Colorado, for example, um, can't operate with uh, a bank account or sometimes can't accept credit cards uh, because federal banks will, will not accept any profits from an, an illegal Schedule One drug. Uh, so there's been proposed legislation on that. I think uh, the Safe Banking Act is one law that I came across. Um, but that, that also contributes to these disproportionate you know, economic gains from legal weed. Um, we know that the people who have best access to the banking system and to these economic structures that allow big businesses to flourish are wealthier people. Um, and that if we want to fix the disparities, then I think federal legalization would be the biggest empowerment towards that. I want to make one more point about decriminalization versus legalization and its relation to arrests. We've talked a lot about young people, but we haven't really talked about how when you legalize marijuana, you're not legalizing it for people who are under the age of 21. It's still illegal. So there's been research on incarceration rates when states decriminalize weed versus when they legalize weed. The research shows that in states that legalize weed, there is no immediate reduction in arrests of people under 21. But when states decriminalize weed without fully legalizing it, there were reductions in arrests rates of minors. This is possibly because states that primarily focused on forming legal markets were less focused on decriminalization policy, while states that focused primarily on decriminalization created legislation that would have the maximum impact on the criminal consequences for people of all ages. So there possibly is a difference when you're going full out and just legalizing it. People only focus on adults, and they don't necessarily focus on trying not to put people in jail that are still disobeying the law. Versus when you decriminalize it, you're just trying to focus on not putting any people in jail whatsoever. So is, if, I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, it's not an inherent difference between the two. It's just the motives behind the states that are decriminalizing are more likely to map onto the motives of keeping people out of jail. Yeah, whereas... that's, that's a hypothesis. Okay, interesting. It's interesting. Um, and obviously, maybe more research needs to be done on this because I think even people that are very pro-marijuana legalization, for example have to be quite strong on the fact that youth marijuana use is not good um, for public health, um, for our criminal justice system, for juvenile detention. Like, the, the serious effects of marijuana use and chronic marijuana use are overwhelmingly for young people. I think that's, that's what we have seen in the literature. Um, so yeah, whether it's decriminalization or legalization, wait until you're 21. And, and worth noting, 
when we talked about the unresponsiveness of drug consumption to changes in the law, it's probably among softer drugs where that applies less, where the shift from illegal to legal for marijuana probably will convince a decent subset of people to start consuming weed when they otherwise wouldn't. And that's what happened in Canada. So Canada has seen an increase in weed consumption. Obviously, there are benefits that have come along with eliminating that as a criminal activity. But it should be noted that where those increases are more likely to apply is probably in the realm of marijuana rather than the harder drugs that we were talking about. Yeah. And I think access plays into that too. I mean, even like a legalized or commercial access for harder drugs, it's hard for me to imagine that that would be as widespread and accessible as legal marijuana is in places. Um, But I'll just say for weed and increasing baseline consumption, there are some worthwhile discussions to be had about health effects on other outcomes. Um, So we know that people can't die of a weed overdose, um, but people can die from a car crash while they're intoxicated, for example. Um, There's been conflicting studies. Um, I read one. This was a a meta-review in 2021 found a, a slight but st- statistically significant increased risk of car crash after cannabis use. Um, some studies had it at a, a really high THC level. Some studies didn't see much association. Uh, but it raises the question, uh, with any policy lever that we're going to pull, there are going to be downstream effects that we might not be able to predict. I, I think with alcohol use, for example, we can wonder if, lead is, if weed is fully legalized at the federal level, will it act as a, a complement? To alcohol? A gateway. Or I guess a reverse. Yeah, I, I, I'd say gateway. <laughs> misleading uh, term, yeah, maybe. Misleading um, because I think the biggest gateway is if marijuana is illegal and your drug dealer starts offering you marijuana right. and a harder drug. So I, I don't love gateway, but I think, yeah, in, in that vein of using them both at once and then getting a worse effect on violence or car crashes, or maybe it's a replacement. You know, Maybe people that finish their day with a glass of whiskey sit down with a joint instead. And we know that they're less likely to do bad things generally. That's what the literature has shown if they're using weed instead of alcohol. Um, But that's the uncertain aspect of it. We simply don't know what the broader public health consequences will be until we're able to study it. So don't do weed. (laughs) Or or do it safely. Um, But... I think this has been a productive conversation about these different policies. In the U.S., I'm sure that we'll continue to see an evolving federal landscape and hopefully, in my view, an expansion of harm reduction so that we can see some of the the worst effects of substance use disorders become decreased in the years to come. Um, So stay safe. Do drugs when they're legal. Move to Portugal. (laughs) Or move to Portugal. Thanks for listening.